0: Good morning, Stamford, Le Hope. It is so wonderful to be with you this morning and to be sharing with you. I wish so badly that I was there in real life with you in the flesh. But in many ways, that is actually exactly what we're going to be talking about today, isn't it? That God became flesh. This morning is all about the birth of Jesus. And actually, I've had... A weirdly Christmassy week for July uh, because Pete and I, <coughs> some of you will do the Lectio 365 devotions and, um, and Pete and I write the prayers for night prayers and I'm going off on maternity leave um, before too long which might be news to some of you, most of you probably haven't seen any of you in a long time um, but we are very excited to be expecting baby number two this November and so we've had to get started early on our Advent and Christmas prayers. So I spent all week this week in 30 degree heat writing Christmassy prayers with Pete. And now the weekend has arrived and I'm talking about the birth of Jesus. So it's a Christmas in July kind of week, but here we are. It's been that sort of a year, hasn't <laughs> None of us really know when it is or what is going on. Um, but here we are, the birth of Jesus. And I am so excited to be sharing with you guys today on this topic. And I'm excited actually for a few reasons. I think doing Christmas in July is kind of genius (coughs) because one of the problems with Christmas, and it's a brilliant problem that we have, but Christmas is this incredibly and rightly missional time of year, isn't it? The time when we wanna bring all our friends and family who don't yet know Jesus, We want to bring them all along to church and so we make our Christmas messages very sort of palatable and clear and easy. But the trouble is, at Christmas time, the birth of Jesus happens. The doctrine of the Incarnation is the theological term for what's going on there. And it is one of the biggest, most controversial, most complicated, most complex, most significant kind of theological moments in the whole history of the world and we have to try and kind of make that message really palatable and amongst it have our kids up there with sort of tea towels in their heads and and it's amazing and we do it but there's something really special about taking time outside of that moment and actually saying this incarnation what it really is it what is going on there what does it mean that God was born what does it mean that God became a man And of course, the second problem that we have with Christmas, with the Incarnation, with this birth of Jesus moment, is that we're so over-familiar with the story, right? If you've grown up in a kind of Western, non-Jewish context, you will probably have celebrated this moment every year for your whole life since you were a baby. And so there can be this kind of familiarity when we hear Mary and Joseph and the angels, (coughs) and we kind of kick into autopilot a little bit and we lose some of the mystery and the wonder of what is really going on in this moment when God becomes man. And so what we're going to do today and what I'd really love is for us to capture some of that, that wonder and to just dig a little bit deeper into what was really going on when God was born. What does the incarnation really mean? What is it all about? And what does it mean for our lives? (coughs) So it's going to feel a little bit more sort of teachy than preachy this morning. And I hope that's okay. And if I had been able to be with you guys this morning, then we would have been, you know, whiteboards and flip charts and just getting right into some of the detail here because it is some of the most profound and incredible theology going on. And so we're going to be thinking about God become man incarnation incarnate if you think of like chili con carne that the root word there is like meat flesh the in-fleshness of jesus this idea that god became a human like we are infinity dwindled to infancy Dietrich Bonhoeffer who's this brilliant theologian says this all christian theology has its origin in the wonder of all wonders, that God became human. Holy theology arises from knees bent before the mystery of the divine child in the stable. Without the holy night, there is no theology. And then Tozer says this wonderful thing, he says, every time you think of the incarnation, you should bow your head for a moment. And that's really my longing for each of us this morning is that as we dig into this crucial moment in history, and we grapple with some of its complexity, that for each one of us listening this morning, that there would be some point in this message where your heart would just get gripped again by the beauty and the wonder and the mystery of it all. To such a point where you just have to bow your head for a moment and encounter the God, man, Jesus. So let's open up our Bibles, if you will, with me at John chapter one, and we're going to be reading from verses one to 14. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. and That life was the light of all mankind. The world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent or of human decision, but born of God. (coughs) The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen, his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth amen so the first thing that i want us to think about is just to establish the essential facts of the incarnation and and the essential facts are basically that god that jesus sorry was both fully god and fully man at the same time. Now this idea was and is so totally wild that it caused serious numbers of theological councils, debates, people fiercely arguing that there is no way that someone who's genuinely human like us could possibly be God. And there is no way that God could possibly also be a man in any real sense. And so the claim from Jesus that he was, in fact, God measured up with the fact that he was clearly a man and walking around and doing all the things that humans do and being born the way that humans were. This was a big problem, a big theological, philosophical problem to figure out. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, John says. So essential fact number one is Jesus became flesh. He was genuinely conceived in the womb of Mary and entered the world as both fully human and fully God. And this tying together of the human and the divine, it was so difficult for people to grasp. That they went into, and if you read some of the councils, (coughs) some of the treaties from this from the early councils, where they were trying to establish who this man was and, and trying to sort out these theological claims, the the idea that Jesus was was genuinely born in itself was so wild that you get a lot of people arguing this strange line of thought where they're like, Okay, maybe he's sort of like, you know, there's no way he could be sort of like genuinely you know, in Mary's womb and kind of growing and all that stuff the way a normal human would do. Maybe it just came time for birth and, and he sort of magically slipped through the birth canal. <laughs> and it's like, I mean, th- the inherent sort of, I don't know, view of women that <laughs> is held in that. The idea that there is just no way that Mary could genuinely have had this god man living inside of her. He, he probably just sort of slipped out. And then we get Tertullian and he comes in with his brilliant treatise which is called On the Flesh of Christ. Um, and and he basically, he argues in really graphic detail that no, like Jesus was really, he had to be really genuinely um, growing in her like a normal child does and, and if he wasn't, then when he was born, um, Mary wouldn't be able to feed him because there would be no way that her body would have connected the fact that you know there was a baby growing in her womb and he like ties lactation to, to the baby's development and to be honest it's fascinating as a woman you know i recommend reading some of this stuff because it is just remarkable to actually think for a moment about the fact that jesus really was growing inside of her as wild and as scandalous and as hard to stomach as this was for people lucy Peppiat says this mary is not simply a receptacle of the divine, (coughs) housing him as it were. She supplies his humanity from her own body. Her blood forms him. Her food nourishes him. Her breasts feed him. Jesus is made of her, not just in her. And that is so scandalous, right? But so beautiful. Jesus was truly born of Mary, truly human. Philippians 2, Verse 7 describes the way in which Jesus does this, (coughs) that he emptied himself of his glory in order to become fully genuinely human. And the word used for this process is kenosis. It means self-emptying and it's this kind of mysterious way and we don't know exactly how this occurred but, but somehow Jesus empties himself in order to become genuinely human. And yet, at the same time, is fully God and fully able to reveal God in all his glory to us. It is the most beautiful and scandalous divine mystery. But there are two opposing problems going on. His humanness and his divinity. And... um, (coughs) There's a school of thought at the time of Jesus which was really prevalent, and actually I think is probably quite prevalent today, although we don't use the same terms. There's a school of thought called Gnosticism. And this was the Greek way of thinking about the world, where basically they see everything that is like matter, the stuff of the earth, as being kind of fallen and broken and messed up, and they look at our our bodies and our flesh and they see sort of sexual impurity and and just dirtiness and you know bodily functions and the need to pass wind and all of that and they say all of that is what needs to we need to escape and we need to kind of go into our minds and go into our souls and it's this very ethereal kind of a lot of like what you call new age today kind of taps into this idea of you must try and somehow escape your body in order to engage with the divine of course, one of the big problems with that is if enlightenment and holiness only comes in this space apart from your body, then you can kind of do whatever you want with your body or with anyone else's body. And so it has horrible implications for our morality, for our relationships with one another, yada, yada, yada. (coughs) But the, the Gnostics, this is kind of how they thought. And so for them, true enlightenment was so far removed from anything fleshly, the idea that God would come and start walking around and not just be close to flesh but be in it and embrace it and say I am human like you know you can touch this skin you can you can see the dirt in my fingernails that level of humanity to them was just so heretical there is no way that someone truly enlightened and holy would think that way about their own skin I don't know about you, but what that does for me is it just, it gives me such a higher view of my own body, right? That, that Jesus would so gladly and willingly step into flesh and say, true enlightenment doesn't happen somewhere else. It happens right here <laughs> within human flesh. Your flesh is not the, the barrier to enlightenment. It's not the thing that you have to overcome, it's a part of who you are and how I made you. And I know all of us have various different frustrations with our bodies and things go wrong with our bodies and and it is a constant wrestle. But the fact that Jesus so willingly comes and takes on human form and then goes and the Bible talks about Jesus sitting down at the right hand of the Father still looking like us. That to me gives me a fresh wonder and appreciation for the skin that I'm in. So we've got these Gnostics and they're saying <coughs> No way, no high. He cannot possibly be fully man. We gotta try and escape the body. Yada yeah, yada. Yeah. And they what they want to do is they want to focus on the divinity of Jesus and they wanna say, Okay, sure, maybe he walked around and looked like us, but look at his miracles and look at this and etc. But one of the real problems with that viewpoint, (coughs) with trying to get away from the humanity of Jesus is that it's only in becoming and genuinely a man like us that Jesus can save us. And this is where you'll go into this in your life and death of Jesus session. But Jesus becomes the second Adam. So the fact that he is born as a man means that he can come in and redo and redeem the mistakes that we have made, that he can come in and die a perfect death in our place truly as one of us. But in order for that to happen, he has to truly be one of us. Gregory of Nazianzus has this famous line where he says, for that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. Unless he truly puts on humanity in every way, shape, or form, (coughs) there'll be parts of us that are unredeemed. So we can't take away from Jesus humanity. But then, of course, the other opposing problem for people comes with the idea of Jesus divinity. Because how, how, how can a human like me or you possibly be God? There's something almost heretical For people to try and get their heads around the idea that we could worship a human and then be god and there's a guy called arius who becomes famous for a heresy which is now known as the arian controversy where he basically argued that jesus was like he was pretty superhuman you know as far as humans go he was up there like he's like as good as it's possible to get but not quite god and he has this famous false line which was there was a time when the son was not in other words he's not truly God he wasn't truly (coughs) pre-existent etc and he gets ruled out as a heretic and and we now understand that Jesus is truly both but I think for us to properly understand the birth of Jesus to get our heads around the incarnation we even today have to position ourselves against these two temptations We can be tempted to focus on one at the expense of the other, but the truly unique glory of Christ is that he was both fully God and fully man. His birth through Mary was not merely symbolic, he was truly her child and born as we are. And the theological term for this is the hypostatic union, the union of two natures, the divine and the human. Humanity and divinity. Hypostasis means person. So it's a way of saying these two natures in one. The hypostatic union. And so you can't kind of take Jesus and look at his life and say, oh, there he is having a human moment. Or there he is having a God moment. He is always, at all times, this perfect union of both natures. And there's a great quote. I'm not going to read it all out because you've got it in your notes. But... um, I think it's Bonhoeffer again talking about the lowly God-man is the scandal of pious people. (laughs) It's just scandalous, this whole idea of the God-man is a scandal. Okay, (coughs) excuse me, coughing all the time. So having got our heads around kind of the core facts of the Incarnation theologically, God-man. I want to think for a second about the uniqueness and the historicity of the incarnation there's a quote that says there is no real parallel to the story of the birth of christ in pagan literature the idea of a god becoming human in every way in order to draw close to and save his people it is completely unique in all world religions Nothing comes close to the humility, the beauty and the controversial nature of the Incarnation. It is truly unique and truly historical. This is something that really took place in a real time called Bethlehem at a very real moment in history. And you would be extremely hard pressed to find any serious scholar, historian, philosopher, theologian who would try to make any case that Jesus did not exist his existence is very historically verified. He was a real man who walked around, did a bunch of stuff that people talked about and died on a Roman cross. These things we know are true. And John, in the passage that we read in John 1, he is very strongly emphasising this historical point. And it can be easy to miss that because the language of you know the word became flesh can become just a bit Christmassy and like over familiar and we kind of miss some of what's going on and Bob Yarborough who's a New Testament scholar he says this talking about John 1 the variety of verbs correspond to the variety of witness attestation in ancient jurisprudence <laughs> what on earth does that mean in real words Basically, what this guy Bob is saying is that when you read through the language of John 1, the different verbs he uses are similar to the kinds of things that would occur in a court. So all the things that you would do if you were needing to swear a deposition or make a witness statement, you would want to say, we ha- I have seen it. I am an eyewitness. <laughs> it is something that I have seen and I have heard and I've witnessed. And basically what this guy Bob Yarborough is saying is this isn't just this beautiful poetic kind of philosophical moment that John is having. He's actually standing up and being counted and saying I am swearing a deposition. I am making a historical statement about the theological truth of what we know happened and what we encountered. So what John is trying to say is it's not just a nice story. <laughs> he really came and did these things. And if God really did come to the earth if the incarnation is true and John is saying it is absolutely true this is an eyewitness account I'm swearing my deposition this means that God really walked the earth as a man this is historical and then finally I want us to think about the purpose of the incarnation so we know we've delved a little bit into what on earth is going on there what are the core facts what does it mean? But why? Right, why would the God of all the universe step onto the stage of human history looking like us? What was the purpose of it? <coughs> and we've already kind of touched on the primary reason, which is for our redemption. God came in order to save us. And we'll not go too much into this because I know that you're going to look at this when you do, when you look at the death of Jesus in the next part of your series. But Jesus came in order to save people from their sins. And then the second purpose of the Incarnation is the manifestation and revelation of God. He is the Word. He is the manifestation of God's love and wisdom in a readily understandable form. The Incarnation tells us about God. Well, we want to know what does god look like what does he sound like who is he how does he react in certain situations the bible says here is jesus this is god in jesus we see what god is like and it's unbelievably surprising and unbelievably good i remember a few years back um going to a thing called baby cinema i don't know if you guys have that in stanford la hope but It's where they do these special screenings where you can take your newborn to the cinema. And on a good day, it's this amazing idea where (coughs) you know the baby sleeps, and as a mum or a dad, as a new parent, you get to just sit and enjoy a movie and it's glorious. And there were times when it was more often it's just like a cacophony of chaos, just a symphony of tears and shouts. and, And we're all just trying to watch a movie and it's a little bit crazy, but I used to go sometimes with Thea when she was a little baby. And um, my friend Andrea went one time and it was, um, the film was Apollo Creed, that classic baby friendly movie. And um, and we're in there. And if I'm honest, I didn't get very far through it because on that occasion, Thea was not playing ball with the idea of sitting quietly while Mum got to watch a film. But I did see the moment where they come into the ring for a fight. So if you haven't seen it, Paul Creed's all about boxing. And basically so much of the big fight is determined by the big entrance, right? There's this moment where the two opposing players, fighters, boxers, I don't really know what you call them, but they come in and they're all kind of like geared up in their special outfits and they come in and it's like this whole kind of macho, like, I'm gonna beat you. I'm class and I'm really strong, and and it's this big like display of strength. And their entrance, you know, they want their entrance to tell you everything about who they are and how they're gonna be in the ring. And I think this moment in history, the nativity scene, this is this was Jesus' big entrance, right onto the global stage. This was him stepping into the ring, stepping into the stage of human history and saying this is who I am and in this moment he doesn't come in this display of macho bravado or glory or pomp he comes as a baby in literally the most unassuming way amongst unassuming people it's so surprising everything about the entrance of God onto the stage of human history is unbelievably unlikely and unbelievably good news Mary and Joseph are young, Like, let's start there. If you're a young person listening to this message today, have you ever felt discounted? Have you ever felt looked down on or not taken seriously enough? Because, you know, you're a young person, what do you know? Mary and Joseph are young. (coughs) They're young, unmarried teenagers about to be entrusted with a child who is the son of God. God saw them. And he sees you, he saw Mary and Joseph and the fact that he saw them and chose them shows us that God is not interested in age. He is interested in faithfulness. He's not interested in qualifications. He is interested in character. Mary and Joseph are unlikely. Bethlehem is unlikely, a nowhere place. Now I'm not gonna say Stanford La Hope is a nowhere place because Stanford La Hope is awesome. But on the stage of human history god picks like bethlehem where did this come from have you ever felt like i'm kind of stuck in a place that doesn't feel significant but for his grand entrance god chooses a stable over a castle because this good news was not about impressive displays of power and dominance this is a god who quietly arrives unexpectedly in the middle of the night amongst ordinary people. Why? (coughs) And then there's two lots of people who get invited to come and witness this moment. Firstly, the shepherds. Now this was a lowly profession. These were essentially nobodies who hung out in fields. They were not popular, they were not eloquent. And that God would show up and treat them to this amazing, sound and light angel concert and tell them the secret that this baby has been born it's just so wild and beautiful because god sees them in that field and he sees you do you feel stuck maybe in a a profession where you feel unseen where it doesn't feel like maybe your achievements are that significant and yet god's about to step onto the stage of human history who does he see What does that tell you about what this God is like and the fact that he sees you? But then the other guys that get told about Jesus are the wise men. (coughs) Totally, totally different group of people. These were men of influence and power and wealth. And God chose to let them in on the secret too maybe you are in that more you find yourself more in that kind of category maybe you are really well educated maybe you do hold a bit more you know worldly wealth and power and sometimes it can feel like that discounts you (laughs) but God sees you he sees the hours that you've put into your studies he sees the work that you've done to get where you are and he shows us in this crazy way that Neither of those groups is discounted. Both are seen and both are welcomed in the manger. Never would these two groups of blokes have talked to one another in the street. Yet God sees them both and invites them both. And this is so incredibly important because it shows us that God is into people, not position. He's the God who sees the incredibly lowly strategic nobodies and he's the god who sees the incredibly rich strategic somebody somebody's who have the attention of herod right the ruler of the time like these guys were significant and god sees both there's a place for everyone in this beautiful and unlikely story see jesus entrance and i want you to think of a boxing match every time you think about christmas now (laughs) That's too big of an ask, but Jesus' entrance into the ring, onto the stage of human history, it tells us, it tells us who he is and it tells us what he's all about. And what it tells me is here is a God who's good news for all people, right? Not just those who have it all together and not just those on the outside, but those on the inside too. This is good news for everybody. His entrance tells us a lot about who he is, and it tells us that he loves our lowliness. He loves our humanness. Bonhoeffer says this <coughs> Only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And that is the wonder of all wonders that God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to lowliness. He loves the lost, (coughs) the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak, and the broken. God loves our lowliness. And the Incarnation shows us something else crucial about the nature of God and that is his view of our sin. Society today, and I think even within Christianity, I think it's easy to see that there are two great opposing schools of thought when it comes to sin today. And the first is what you could call moralism and the second is relativism. So moralism on the one hand is that we kind of earn our way and you you work hard to be a good person improve yourself etc etc and then on the other hand there's relativism which is basically it doesn't really matter what we do it's all relative kind of you do what's right for you <coughs> and I'll focus on me but Christmas shows us the incarnation shows us that Our God is vastly different to both of these things. Tim Keller says this, a God who was only holy would not have come down to us in Jesus Christ. He would have simply demanded that we pull ourselves together, that we be moral and holy enough to merit a relationship with him. A deity that was an all accepting God of love would not have needed to come to earth either. This God of the modern imagination Sorry, this God of the modern imagination would have just overlooked sin and evil and embraced us. Neither the God of moralism nor the God of relativism would have bothered with Christmas. Sorry, I think my camera's falling over. I've got a very high-tech setup here. I'm so sorry, my whole camera fell down right in the middle of my spiel there. So I'm just going to carry on as we were and pretend like that never happened we were on tim keller (laughs) and we were saying neither the god of moralism nor the god of relativism would have bothered with christmas what is beautiful about our god is that it does matter that there is evil in this world right it matters to him when children are abused when people are trafficked for sex he is not okay with these things and in the incarnation, he comes in judgment of these things. But the profoundly good news of Christmas is that he comes to judge and to save. He dies in place of all the ways that we have and will mess up in order to make us worthy. Bonhoeffer talks about the shiver of Christmas. And it's this side here that we don't often talk about it. But this idea that God, the Holy One, is stepping onto the stage of this messed up world with all our brokenness and the judgment of God will come. But the beautiful truth is that the one who comes in justice is the one who comes in love and that love covers and saves us. God comes to be with us, even in our sin and not just to be with us in it, but to save us from it. So what does this mean? It means that salvation is by grace and not by works. This school of thought of moralism of like we can earn our way, we can earn our way. <coughs> always, always is only ever going to put pressure on and never going to work. It just doesn't work. Or the God of relativism. That doesn't work. This idea of you do you and I'll, I'll do what's right for me. That just allows for all kinds of atrocities. Both of these are so problematic with the God Of grace is the one who judges and saves that is the good news of the Incarnation secondly it means that you can have fellowship with God he makes himself seeable you can have fellowship with God the doctrine of the Incarnation is really all about fellowship we're being told that it's not enough to believe in God It's not enough even to obey him the incarnation tells us that god went to infinite lengths to come near to you to have fellowship with you to know us personally god is not content to simply be a concept because he became human (coughs) in order to be known One of the reasons that he does this is so that we can have intimacy with him. Before the incarnation, we couldn't see God without perishing. And so he makes himself seeable. He makes a way that we can look at him face to face. Tim Keller again says, everything in the Hebrew worldview mitigated against the idea that a human being could be God. Jews could not even pronounce the name Yahweh nor spell it. And yet Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims and by his resurrection, convinced his closest Jewish followers that he was not just a prophet telling them how to find God, but God himself come to find us. He went to every length to be close to us. And now we get to be close to him and what this means is that love really matters to qu- quote that great theological work love actually is all around us <laughs> love is what the incarnation is all about love is at the center but we see in the birth of jesus that that god is part of the trinity that 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 he is in himself, all loving and and part of community. And he shows us that fellowship is what we're made for. The secular world would want to say, matter is all there is, right? You're no more than the sum of all your nerve cells and chemical responses. John says, no, right at the center of the universe is love. And finally, It means that you can have unbeatable joy. I love this. Tozer says this. The joy of God has gone through the poverty of the manger and the distress of the cross. Therefore, it is invincible and irrefutable. Do you need joy today? How about the invincible and irrefutable kind? God came in flesh. He stepped onto the stage of history in order to be close to us, in order to save us, in order to show us that love is at the center of who we are and how we're designed, to show us that fellowship can be ours and to give us joy, whatever circumstances we're walking through. I wanna end with a prayer for you guys if that's all right and then there's some questions for you to go and discuss (coughs) as we go into prayer I want to I want to read this to you and it's a prayer particularly for those of us who for whatever reason are maybe feeling a bit weary today maybe you feel a bit world weary maybe this pandemic has just worn you down to the point of exhaustion maybe um job pressures or life pressures or home pressures have got to you I just want to hear, want you to hear the word of hope that God has for you today that says the incarnation means that I am a God who sees, I see you and I am a God who is ministering to you wherever you are. Look up, you whose gaze is fixed on this earth, who are spellbound by the little events and changes on the face of the earth. Look up to these words you who have turned away from heaven disappointed. Look up, you whose eyes are heavy with tears and who are heavy and who are crying over the fact that the earth has graciously torn us. Look up, you who burdened with guilt cannot lift your eyes. Look up, your redemption is drawing near. Something different from what you see daily will happen. Just be aware, be watchful, Wait just another short moment. Wait and something quite new will break over you. God will come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that when the world was weary and broken and lost, that you came, that you stepped onto the stage of human history and changed everything forever. God, I thank you. For your birth which tells us so much about who you are and about who we are and I pray Lord Jesus for each person gathered in Stamford La Hope this morning would you be so present amongst them as they break for groups now Lord Jesus would you <coughs> just be so present and speaking and felt in their midst in Jesus name Amen so I've given you some discussion questions. Um, which you should have and these are just a starting point feel free to totally ignore them and talk about whatever has come up for you this morning. It has been an honour and a joy to share with you um, all of our love to you guys in Stanford and we miss you and we hope to see you in real life in person before too long. Bye.